Hey there, welcome. Glad you're coming along for the ride on another episode of the Syracuse Sports Podcast. This is episode 38. If you're just arriving for the first time, we're so glad you're here. But here's an easy way to get every episode of you sent to your iPhone or wherever you listen to your podcast, maybe on Google Play, to listen on your time on demand whenever you want. Subscribe! Find us in iTunes or Google Play. Just search Syracuse Sports Podcast. A lot of you have already done that and are listening to the podcast that just showed up on your phone, right? You got that cool little notification. It said, a new episode of the Syracuse Sports Podcast is available. And here we are. But who knows? You could be listening to episode 24, episode 28, episode 32. Hey, episode 37, our last episode, featured a conversation with Bob Costas. Yes, that Bob Costas, the famous Syracuse University broadcaster. I think you'll really enjoy that conversation. Bob told us some great stories about being at Syracuse back in the day, about an amazing story. You Slapshot fans are really going to appreciate when Bob was the play-by-play announcer of the Syracuse Blazers, a minor league hockey team right here in Syracuse in the 1970s. And a character on that team named Bill Goldthorpe inspired the character from Slapshot. Remember Ogie Oglethorpe? He was based on a real guy who once, let's say, had a confrontation with Bob on the team bus. You'll definitely want to hear that story and our full conversation with Bob Costas in our last episode, which is episode 37. So check it out in iTunes or Google Play. And a great way to get new episodes is to subscribe. So we would really appreciate it if you could do that. A couple of things on our mind on the Syracuse Sports Podcast this week, including two things related to the Syracuse Chiefs. One is, I don't know what the new nickname for the Syracuse Chiefs is going to be. We do know, as Lindsey Kramer reported on Syracuse.com this week, that a new nickname is coming when the Mets fully take over the Syracuse Chiefs in 2019. Now, they own the team now, but meaning when the Washington Nationals are no longer associated with the team, they're going to change the nickname. As a matter of fact, they've already filed the trademarks and the patents and all the things you have to do to change the team nickname, get the jerseys, get the merchandise that you have to sell, right? So what's it going to be? Well, I can tell you what it shouldn't be, and that's the Syracuse Mets. We'll get into that coming up. A former Syracuse Chiefs play-by-play guy, now doing play-by-play for the Chicago White Sox and ESPN, Jason Benetti. We're going to catch up with Jason today. It's great to catch up with an old friend, hear what he's doing, and somebody who's truly living the dream. This is a kid who grew up a fan of the Chicago White Sox, and now he's their play-by-play announcer He's a former Syracuse Chiefs play-by-play guy, and Jason is not only a great dude, a great broadcaster, but he's got an amazing story of adversity that he overcomes every single day to do the job that he loves. So we'll hear that conversation coming up. But I want to start with this. How often have you, as a sports fan, seen a story about a player making what you would determine to be too much money? And you think back to your days as a high school athlete, or you think back to your days as a college athlete, or you simply say, based on your love of the game, that I'd do it for free. Now, that's silly. Who would do that? Who would actually show up, take time out of their busy lives, practice, show up to a game in a dangerous sport where concussions and the focus on head injuries and injuries themselves has never been more prevalent, and play for free? Well, guess what? There's an organization that does just that right in our own backyard every weekend throughout the summer. And if you can't wait for fall to get your football fix, 
may I suggest that you check out our friends at the Syracuse Strong. Now, as I record this podcast here on Friday, July 13th, ooh, Friday the 13th, creepy, right? The video that we're doing on the Syracuse Strong on Syracuse.com is not up yet. You're going to see it sometime next week. But I was really struck when my photographer, Scott Trimble, and I went over to practice this week and started to see the young men and sometimes a little older men, middle-aged men, that make up the Syracuse Strong because they truly do play for the love of the game. These guys are a semi-pro football team in Syracuse that are pretty darn good, by the way. As we speak, they're 5-1, and one, and this team over the past couple of years has been one of the better teams in whatever league they play. You know, semi-pro football, minor league football, you're kind of always scrapping for sponsor dollars and finding ways to keep the league alive because, like I said, these guys don't get paid. But whatever league they've been in in recent years, they've been successful. They actually went to a bowl game in New Orleans last year. So I'm there, and they're practicing on a field that you would walk by a hundred times if you were just on a leisurely summer stroll and not think that a football team shows up there once a week to practice. It's right behind Clary Middle School down in the valley of Syracuse. Now, there was plenty of activity going on over at Meacham Field on this beautiful summer night when Scott and I were there. There was lacrosse games going on. There were softball games going on. There was lacrosse games going on. And there was a pretty big crowd there watching all those respective games. Over in the shadows of what was happening there behind Clary Middle School were these men who it was amazing to see because practice started at 7 o'clock. But as practice went along, more and more people kept showing up. And the reason that was the case was they were coming off work. They were coming off obligations for the summer, dropping their kids off, picking their kids off, finding a babysitter for whatever it would be, an hour or two, just so these guys could get to practice. There was one player, I kid you not, who walks on the football field for practice, and I noticed that he had a sticker on a shirt, and I didn't really notice it at first. I thought it was just a a, a patch or a logo or something for the Syracuse Strong. And I was talking with a gentleman who was next to me, Khalid Bey, a matter of fact, is his name. He is a Syracuse councilman and is very involved with the Syracuse Strong and has just a true passion for semi-pro football in Syracuse and this team. I mean, he does this all for free himself. All the work that he does is kind of a, a spokesman and a member of the board of trustees and a lot of effort behind the scenes is put in by Khalid. And he looks at me and he said, do you know what that sticker was? And I said, no, what was it? It was a hospital sticker. This guy had come from his wife having a baby that day because he wanted to make practice. So if you get a chance this summer, the Syracuse Strong, now we're recording this on Friday the 13th, they've got a home game on July 14th at Meacham Field. They've got a home game on July 21st at Meacham Field. And then as you go into the month of August, they've got a few home games in the month of August as well. And maybe, you know, you want to see them other places. You may be listening in other parts of New York State where they play, you know, in places like Watertown. Auburn has a team called the Auburn Pride, the Troy Fighting Irish. Uh, We mentioned the Watertown Red and Black. They go to Broome County. They go up to Carthage. So they are all over New York State what's called the NFA, the National Football Alliance, that they play in. I hope you get a chance, especially if you are a big football fan here in central New York, to watch these guys play because they do play for free. They do play for the true love and passion of the game. 
And look, I've got to tell you, there's some good football players out there just being at practice. I can tell you there's a few guys that could have played at SU, that could play at somewhat of a, a true paid professional level. The, the kind of the step up from the league these guys are in is arena football or arena football too. There's been a few players that have actually made it to the Canadian Football League as well. So if you're a football nut in central New York and you can't quite wait another month or two till training camps really get going, till the season is just around the corner, you know, it really feels like football season kind of when the New York State Fair comes and you know that SU is starting, but there's still those great days in September that you don't want to waste. You know, we call them the apple pickers, right? They love to go, you know, outside and, and soak up the sun instead of going inside at the Carrier Dome. And you really can't blame them for that, frankly. Well, you don't have to do that with the Syracuse Strong. You can enjoy a beautiful summer night, get your football fix, and watch players do what you have said at some point maybe you would do. I would play for free. Well, maybe you can't play for free, but these guys do. And they play pretty darn well for guys that play for free. So check out the Syracuse Strong sometime this summer. I'm sure they would appreciate it. From football to baseball, the boys of summer. What a great job that is to kick back on all those beautiful summer nights and call the games of your favorite baseball team growing up, who happens to be the Chicago White Sox. Former Syracuse Chiefs broadcaster, Syracuse University alum, Jason Benetti, joins me now here on the Syracuse Sports Podcast. So Jason, as uh, an esteemed broadcaster and a former professor of a class that I uh, inherited from you and, and Dan Duva, here is the first and most important question I have for you. Can you talk about being a play-by-play broadcaster? Oh, I never, I never would have thought that that wouldn't have been the first question. I love a talk-about question, don't you? Talk about this. Open a vein. Let's discuss this. How are you, Brent? Can I, you talk about how you are? I am fantastic, and I love when people give a command to somebody to do something they're already doing. Like, I'm asking you a question, you're talking, but I'm going to reinforce that I would like you to talk about this as opposed to, you know, send Morse code or something of of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Talk about is kind of like, um, it's kind of like, please dance for me. It's very close to just, hey, dance. Right now, usually, like, yeah. Usually, when usually when you're commanded to do that, it's it's like in an old western, and somebody's pointing a gun at you, right? Dance. That's right. Dance for him. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Wait, talk, talk for me. Talk, <laughs> clown. <laughs> so, Jason, uh, I was informed that you were recently the grand marshal of a parade back in your hometown. Which, by the way, this is fantastic. Jason's hometown is Homewood, Illinois. The home it yeah. puts the home in hometown. So, what yeah, is? It, I was gonna say. What were you what, gonna say? I was gonna say. What is the official strategy of being a grand marshal in terms of even distribution of waving to the people that are watching the parade? How do you make that work? It's funny you say that because as I was as I was in this car, uh, I was I was waving quite a bit, and I thought, wow, this is tiresome because you just keep waving, and then I thought to myself, well, you dope. Like, it's new people every time you move forward. So (laughs) I was such a parade-waving novice that it did not strike me until about halfway through that 
it was just new people, and that's why you wave over and over again. Truly, you learn something new every day. That is a valuable lesson for future parade grand marshals or people marching in the parade. I do have experience marching in a parade, and, and I did have that knowledge. You could have consulted me on that. Next time, just, just let me know. I'll try and help you out. I should have. It was dopey for me not to because the only thing I had done, I was uh, I held the baton. I was a drum major in a parade when I was in band in high school, uh, junior high, actually, because I played the tuba. And they thought I might do like an I'm a little teapot routine and tip over (laughs) because they didn't want me to wear the tuba, you know. So, Jason, here is the standard question that broadcasters get, but I'm very curious about your take on this because, you know, I've been asked this question, you've been asked this question, and I think anytime broadcasters talk to broadcasters, you know, they ask this question. So I'm going to pose it to you. In preparing for what you do, baseball is unique because it is every day, and you don't do every game, all 162 games, but there is certainly enough of a rhythm that, you know, you are constantly preparing. And I think that's the best answer to that question is, well, you're always preparing, right? But can, to as much detail as you want to get into, what is kind of your daily routine of getting ready for a Chicago White Sox broadcast? You know, it, it, it's interesting because now that I'm doing 140 of them, it's much more like when I was doing the Chiefs and you're there every day and you're just kind of in it. So life is preparation. Like if there's a mechanical issue with the plane, you're talking to guys on the plane. Like if you are in a rain delay and you're downstairs and you're talking to guys. So that, that daily routine is very important, but you do have to know how to break it too, because if you just get into a rut, then you're not looking for new ways to do it. So generally when I get up in the morning, I've hammered out a couple things the night before. Like we have a Google doc that our crew shares. Um, and so when we build graphics or have video or whatever it might be, we put it into the doc. So we all kind of have it in front of us during the day. And generally I'll build a couple things and our producer will, and our associate producer will. And then uh, I kind of put it away for a couple hours and just do regular life things, read, watch MLB network for a little while go have lunch with a friend, whatever it might be. Um, And then I go to the park. I put in my lineups earlier than I used to because the lineups generally are there a little earlier uh, in the majors uh, because there are fewer late scratches and things like that. And I'm not having to do the game notes because I'm not the PR guy anymore. But then I'll go down to the clubhouse. I'll chat with some of our guys. I usually sit with our manager for a little bit because I enjoy talking to him and he usually has some insightful stuff to say about last night's game. And then I'll go back upstairs and I kind of have, uh, you know, maybe an hour or so to pick out little flex of things, stories, kind of get my thoughts in a row of where we're going to go that night. But some of my prep actually happened in the off season. I built a big document with notes on players because I knew this was the first year that I was going to be doing all 140 of these. So I built a big document with the notes, on, on players that I thought we were going to see in the majors. And I have to update it some during the season, but background notes, family things, you know, stuff that's interesting, especially in case of an emergency blowout situation. So I have that, that I control F on my uh, computer to kind of search for things. If I need to jog my memory, whatever it might be. So I have that in front of me and I put most of my notes in the scorebook in general. I don't have a big chart like I do for basketball or football, but uh, it is a constant process. 
And some of it definitely is the night before. But a lot of it, for me, is talking to players and chatting with them about specific things that, that happen in the game the night before or just things that came up on the broadcast. Like uh, one of our outfielders, Charlie Tilson, who played in Charlotte, so Chiefs fans may have seen him at some point. Uh, Charlie's brother, Will, is a blues guitarist and vocalist in Chicago, and Charlie had mentioned that to me before, so I brought it up on the air, and Steve said, uh, hey, is, is Will short for anything? And I said, you know, I don't know, uh, Will being his brother, and, and Steve goes, do you think it might be Wilson Tilson? And I said, you know, I don't think it is. Uh, I don't think his name is Wilson Tilson. However, I'll check. And I went downstairs the next day and I mentioned it. I, I walked up to Charlie actually. And I was like, Hey, got a quick question for you. And he goes, I bet you I know what it is. And I was like, yeah. And first he said, you know, Hey, thanks for giving my brother a shout out. And then, uh, his brother's name is not Wilson Tilson, but like some things you can't prepare for though. Like the other night, we had a guy in the front row who had a giant glob of mustard on his face. We showed him. We showed him again. And we showed him again. And his phone was blowing up. So people were calling him and saying, hey, dude, you got mustard on your face. You're on TV. Well, his wife was sitting to his right, and the mustard was on his left cheek. Oh, no. So, so he had the phone on the left side of his face. So he was talking to these people, starts wiping his mustache area, which is not where it was at all. Well, his wife couldn't see the mustard because the phone was covering the mustard. <laughs> and it took a long time for him to get the mustard off of his face. Well, then Yahoo picked it up and ESPN picked it up. And then Heinz tweeted last night that if their tweet about him gets a certain amount of likes, they'll give him season tickets for a year and some free mustard. Now we're talking right there. You can't prepare for yeah. that at all. That is fantastic. No, you can't. But you went with it. So now now I'm captivated, Jason. How long did it take before the mustard was fully removed from his left cheek? It had, I'm telling you, it had to have been about 15 minutes. Wow. I mean, it was long enough that I actually thought on the air out loud, maybe he's an artist and he got yellow paint on his face. Could be. But it wasn't. This was mustard. But it wasn't. And Steve Stone had a great line. Uh, my partner, he said, it's dollar hot dog night, but $2 napkin night. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. And those are the cool moments that happen on broadcast these days and people have fun with it. And that kind of leads me to my next question, Jason. You you are in a city, as you are well aware. You grew up in Chicago. This is your hometown team, and I do want to ask you about that as well. But this city adores its broadcasters, in particular it's baseball broadcasters. There's, of course, Harry Carey, which is as famous a story as it gets. But Hawk Harrelson is in his final season there with the Chicago White Sox broadcast. And, and both he and Harry Carey and your partner, Steve Stone, are, are beloved broadcasters. And you are getting in that line. But was that intimidating to you to, to step into that role knowing the history of Hawk and what he means to the fan base and, and having to follow that up? You know, Brent, he told me, Hawk did, before I even did my first game, well before, a couple months before, actually, right after I got hired, he said, hey, look, people are going to like you, and some people are not going to like you. You be you, I'll be me, you be yourself, don't you worry about me and what I do, and 
just go be you and do what you do and you'll do great. And that was really good advice, not only because it was coming from him, but just the substance of that advice, because I, I had done that at other levels, but it's not as easy to do it at this level because more people are watching and being critical and whatever it might be. That said, you just have to go do what you do. And it either works or it doesn't. And you have to have the amount of confidence to think it's going to. And some days you're going to miss. But if you hit more than you miss in baseball, generally you're in really good shape. And, and so Hawk was really helpful in that regard. I mean, he's got so many catchphrases and so many things that he does that people love. That, you know, the cool thing about knowing that is that, like you said, this city embraces people and embraces style, no matter what that style is. And so uh, it's been fun. Steve and I have a great time. And, you know, I, I, I feel unworthy uh, of being in such a wonderful city with such great baseball people, not because I'm not worthy of doing the job, but because one person shouldn't. I, I get invited over to dinner a lot, and that's a really daunting, wonderful thing, meaning people just have their TVs on while they're having dinner. If you do go to somebody's house for dinner, do not get mustard on your face. Just, just a tip. Just something to keep. Yeah, in mind. no, yeah. no. I uh, the the fun thing is, I get invited. I, I have dinner in a lot of people's homes, but I never get a breaking and entering wrap. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. I mean, come on. Yeah. If you can yeah. get get away with that, you got to ride that wave as long as you can. Uh, baseball announcers and Santa Claus gets to go into that many that's homes it. Without, that's, without getting a rap sheet. That's the list right there. And occasionally the milkman if he's invited in when uh, the husband's away. But that's a whole different uh, topic for a different day. Right. So, Jason, uh, you brought up Steve, and I wanted to ask you about your partner, Steve Stone. And uh, if, if folks, if you Google Jason and you see some articles about he and Steve, they've become like the new – and I my favorite analogy comes right there from that city – You've become like perfect strangers, the old television show, and you are most definitely bulky, by the way, if, if we're going to talk yeah. about that. I'm not certain about that. No, I, th- uh, I, th- I think, I think that's you. Which one I am. No, I am. You're <laughs> right. You nailed it. That's exactly what it is. Uh, he's just a wonderful human being. Like he, he's, he's, uh, he's been so welcoming to me. He is curious about new stats, which he doesn't have to be. Uh, he's, He's been he's been a very good partner. He goes places every night that you don't expect. He has great wit. Like I'm 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 fortunate to be able to work with him. Jason, uh, you uh, do this broadcast, and you have embraced something that has been a challenge for you in, in daily life. And uh, Jason has cerebral palsy. For those that aren't familiar, and. You know, you have a great, you're actually the subject of a cartoon now, which is a cool little thing. I mean, look, you're a grand marshal of a parade. You're you're getting invited into people's homes free of, 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 you know, charges from the local police. And you have your own cartoon now, which is fantastic. But it embraces how people should, you know, treat people that have cerebral palsy and kind of break down some barriers and break down some stigmas that are out there. So I want you to talk about that. There's another talk about question for you. But oh, I, boy. <laughs> But I also want you to to tell me, is it something you always embraced in discussing publicly? And when you took on a public role that you have now as a broadcaster, you know, is it something you were always comfortable in being kind of somebody to to be a public figure about that, to to tell people like, hey, this is OK, we can discuss this? No, no. And that's where Syracuse really comes in, because when I was at the university, 
You know, when I first went to college, I was somebody who was a little angry. Uh, I wasn't always terribly thrilled to have it mentioned or when things went wrong. Like I was, I was like a, um, I was like an angsty perfectionist where if, if I did something wrong, I thought it was, uh, I thought it wasn't going to be able to be recovered from. So, you know, I, I, I was a little on the edge when it came to creative stuff. And I have found some great friends, uh, who I lived with at school for a couple of years, and they still are friends to this day, who basically surrounded me with understanding. Sometimes they'd say, hey, you're being a, a bag. And sometimes they'd say, you know, we love you. And they kind of worked with me and got me through the understanding that, hey, you can embrace this. You can be fun about this. You can enjoy life a little bit more and not always necessarily think something bad is going to happen or that the world is out to get you or whatever it might be. And they are true, wonderful friends, and they've always been that to me. And so Syracuse University is where I met them, so I, I always have a place in my heart for that. And, and the, when it comes to being public about it, uh, right after Tom Leo did the story about me in the Post-Standard a long time ago, and, and thank goodness the Chiefs are putting Tom Leo in the Wall of Fame. Absolutely. He was such a great man, and I, I miss him dearly. I, I was actually I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I saw uh, I saw the sheet music for God Only Knows, and I sent it to his brother Dom by text because Tom was a huge Beach Boys fan, and I kind of I I got a little misty eyed thinking about him because he was he was such a great guy. But I, I know that's an aside. But but Tom had just written this story about me and, and the old AOL fan house was going to do a story on me. Viv Bernstein was going to write it. And I, uh, I was talking to one of my law professors at the time and I said, you know, I, I don't really want to do this. It's not, I, I don't know how much. And he said, look, if you're at all worried that people are going to hire you because of the disability now, you have to understand that, the work will keep you there. Even if you get something out of it because of that story, number one, what the world gets because you did the story is a beautiful thing. And number two, which, you know, that takes some hubris to agree to that you can affect people like that. And number two, the work is the thing that will keep you there. Even if you get some job, you got to be good at it or else you're not going to stay. Like nobody's giving you charity. And Thank goodness for my professor, Wilson Parker, for saying that and, and those things, because, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have opened up about it, but I have so many people. I just had it at the, at the parade uh, that you were talking about. Uh, a woman came up to me and she had a son with CP and she was like, we wanted to meet you for a, a long time. He's four years old. Uh, you know, what can you offer in the way of advice? And had I not been open about it, I wouldn't be able to have those conversations. And now because of my friends, because of these people that I've gotten to meet uh, over the course of time that have uh, kind of calmed me about it, I now can laugh about it because it's all perception. People see something and make a judgment based on what they see. That's not a crime. That's not a problem. It's not heinous. It's not even hateful necessarily unless they do it over and over again because of the reaction they're getting, then that's hateful. But still, 
to let them affect you is myopic because there's so many other people who aren't hateful. Just ignore them. So I, I know that's easier said than done, but to have fun about something that people are just going to react to, you, you, you have to. You have to have a smile about it or else it'll really get you down. And it's great to hear uh, people have embraced that and have said that, that you are helping them through that and, and that pe- and those people wanted to meet you at the parade. I'm sure you've had plenty of those interactions. But uh, let's plug this. There is a, a little cartoon series that you've started to kind of help people embrace people with disabilities, particularly your disability, and, and how you can kind of handle those, those awkward moments. Right, Jason, where can we find this? Yeah, so it's called Awkward Moments. It's at the Cerebral Palsy Foundation, uh, yourcpf, Y-O-U-R-C-P-F dot O-R-G. Uh, it's, it's called Awkward Moments, which I know you've had some with me and the Chiefs have, and everybody that's run into me has had some sort of awkward moment. Uh, but it, it, number two just came out. The third one is going to come out in about a week. And uh, I, I would really appreciate if people checked it out. We're very proud of it. The guy who co-created it with me, Richard Ellenson, is, is a well-known ad, uh, ad advertising creator uh, whose son has CP as well. And uh, he's a brilliant man, and, and I'm just really excited about being a cartoon. And you don't know how many texts I got from people that said, we, all, we already knew you were a cartoon. Like, we always knew this. You are a cartoon. Yes. That's what makes it perfect, is your personality not only comes through on the air and the broadcast, but you are now literally a cartoon, which is just perfect in in so many ways. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. Where where you go from here, I don't know. Uh, Some of my friends were more malicious about that. But, you know, the one thing I'll say is, when, when I say, like, oh, I've gotten a chance to help people, that... That always sounds a little arrogant to me when I say it. And I think that that can come off that way anytime you help anyone. Anytime you're a teacher or somebody who's a quote-unquote role model or whatever it is. But the ability to be someone to hold up or the ability to just affect people around you positively you don't have to be a TV sports ball announcer to do that. You know, you don't have to be a baseball guy. You don't have to be an entertainer. Like you can have a positive impact on the people around you every single day and have a platform with everybody around you and be tolerant and be caring and be loving. So I think to confine that to me, because I talk about major league baseball for a living shortens the group of people who can have an effect on this earth. So I I just want to say that because I know that people want to hold up folks in the entertainment industry. And what really means a lot to me is when the people who aren't in our industry have a positive impact as well. Jason, I want to circle back to this team that you get to call every day and, you know, it's funny, at the beginning of the conversation, you know, we got on the phone and, and we said, live in the dream. And, you know, we are two people that are very lucky in this world that we get to do that. You know, it must be a constant reminder for you about you get to call the games for your hometown team. You grew up in Chicago. You grew up a White Sox fan. And when 
you know, you came to Syracuse University and wanted to be a professional broadcaster, and I'm sure would have taken a number of gigs in a number of cities, but you get to do it in Chicago for the team you grew up rooting for. I mean, that is an amazing experience. What is that like to do that day in and day out? Well, it's a daily reminder of how um, fortunate I am, how sheer lucky you have to be to have something like this happen. But the other component is it's responsibility. You know, you work for an organization that people care about and you're, you're from a town where people care about you and what you do. And it's, it's the responsibility of being a part of something that is both glorious and daunting at the same time. And I love it every day. And then there was no greater reminder than in April when, when Danny Farquhar, our pitcher, had the whole thing in the dugout where he has a brain aneurysm rupture. He just came off the field. He passes out in the dugout and eventually ends up throwing out the first pitch two months later after a bunch of surgeries, and somehow he's okay. But the day after that happened, you stand around the batting cage, and I know you've done that before, and you usually talk about hitting or songs or who knows what, and it was just this this conversation about mortality that I had with a couple of different players and, and why we're here and what we're doing and how small it all feels when we didn't know if Danny was going to make it. And uh, this season has been in that way a reminder of exactly how fortunate we all are to be doing what we do. And, you know, you sit there and you watch that happen and it doesn't really cross your mind immediately that somebody who's such a wonderful athlete, I mean, even at, even, uh, you know, somebody who's kind of bounced around team to team and has had a lot of different major league homes, he's still a fundamentally wonderful athlete who's at the top, top, top level of athletes in America and the world. And to see his body just stop functioning is a really alarming thing because the body is what he works on every day. And you just have this reminder that, gee, it really, it being anything, can happen to anybody. And it's been a sobering season, but it's also been a, a, a fun season in some ways as well because even when the team has been struggling, Steve and I have a, have a really great time. And we, we've just kind of had all the ups and downs. We've lived life very fully this, uh, this season. That's it, Jason. You know, that incident with Danny, um, what you do every day and a number of things, having fun with your partner really puts life in a perspective that baseball is just baseball. Now, that being said, this team's 30 games under 500 in a city that's passionate about its baseball. And, you know, fans are fans and they're going to stick by their team. But, you know, it's a challenging thing when you have a team that is that is struggling the way the White Sox are. So how have you navigated through that, and you know, the passion that you have for the team and, and the fans? And you know, what's that been like to, to see a team struggling day by day here and, you know, a, a team that's that's near the basement in Major League Baseball right now? Well, this is where the Syracuse Chiefs are important to me. And I say that I say that not to demean the Chiefs because I loved my time there. But we had some bad teams when I was there. There were some bad Chiefs Yes, teams. there was. We and were in that in... press box together, man. There were some lean nights up there. Oh, man. I mean, like, it was a bad team. There were some bad, bad, bad teams. And when you're in AAA and you can't win anything – of, you know, other than a promotion, the record matters even less. So no matter what happens in the majors, 
it, it's, it's going to be a, a little more important to these guys because they really want to stay there. And that, again, again, that, that is not to take anything away from the Chiefs because I love it there, and AAA is a training ground and all of that. But I say it to mean when the World Series is the trophy you're aiming for, there's a little bit more motivation for the players and for everybody, whether there should be or shouldn't be. But I'm saying, too, I was trained to do games that were sort of rough. There were some bad times where you couldn't rely on the standings. You can't. In AAA, in A-ball, anywhere that's the minors, you can't rely on the standings. So I learned that very early on, that it's about the fun you're having regardless of record. And that's very important to me. Jason, it was a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, Continued luck and success to you for sure. And I have to tell you, it was my goal to break as many rules from the advice you gave me for that class that you taught and I now teach at Syracuse, and I pretty much checked every box. we got to talk about it in there. I did a few yes or no questions. I just wanted to break all the rules, and I think I hit everyone on the list today. So thank you for playing along with that as well. Well, let me say this. You, regardless of your terrible questions, no, uh, I, <laughs> you, you have, you've always been such an advocate for me. You've always been such a caring person about not only me, but the city of Syracuse and being local and like you for sports in Syracuse are what Sean Kirst is for the blood of the town. And, and, you know, I know he's doing some other projects and whatever it is, but uh, you are important to the city and I will always do your podcast anytime, anywhere. I'll always do your show because you are a good man who cares deeply about the community and I think everybody needs to appreciate you for that. I, I really do. That is so kind of you to say, Jason, and it means a lot uh, coming from you, and uh, a friend and somebody who I enjoy talking to You know, outside of, of sports and baseball. And I feel that uh, Chicago is, is going to feel that same way. If not now, they're, they're going to over the number of years that you will be the broadcaster for the Chicago White Sox. Jason, thanks again, my friend, and uh, we'll, we'll continue to watch from afar and uh, hope those White Sox get better for you at some point. And if you are in any further parades, uh, just let me know and uh, I can give you some more tips. Thanks, Brent, and I, uh, I miss you all in Syracuse. It's a, it's a great place. Thanks again to Jason Benetti for joining us here on the Syracuse Sports Podcast. Jason used to spend his days in the press box calling games for the Syracuse Chiefs. Perhaps you saw this week, but maybe you didn't. It's about time for the Syracuse Chiefs to change their nickname. Now, there's been a lot of change over on the north side with this baseball team. The Syracuse Chiefs are now owned by the New York Mets, although this year they're still an affiliate of the Washington Nationals. The Syracuse Chiefs are no longer a community-owned baseball team for so long. It's what saved professional baseball in Syracuse, New York, back in the early 1960s, offering up stock and making it a community-owned baseball team. Well, as we know, last year, that stock was sold. A lot of people were not aware that that stock was being sold until a story here on Syracuse.com by Rick Moriarty, and a great story that it was. A lot of people ended up with a few thousand dollars in their back pocket that they didn't even know they could get. Well, that stock was sold, and the New York Mets purchased the team and now own the team. So if the New York Mets want to change the nickname of the Syracuse Chiefs, they're certainly entitled to do that. As a matter of fact, they're going to. This is not a what-if scenario. It's a if as opposed to a when. It's a when as opposed to an if scenario is what I should say. Well, when is coming up soon. 
because the Syracuse Chiefs have filed, or the pardon me, the New York Mets have filed the trademarks. They've filed everything they have to do with minor league baseball and the powers that be to change the logo, to change the nickname, to change everything they need to in order to sell what the new team will be. I have no insight into what the new nickname for our local AAA baseball team will be. I can tell you, however, what it shouldn't be, and that's the Syracuse Mets. And I'm going to give you a few reasons why. Number one, it's bland. It's boring. It's lazy to call them the Syracuse Mets. You've got a very creative team over there. Jason Smorrell, his marketing team, and everybody involved with that organization has put some life into baseball over there, has created some very exciting promotions. And all you have to do is look at the massive success of the Syracuse Salt Potatoes promotion last year that sold a ton of merchandise, got people buzzing. I still see those shirts pretty much every day around central New York, and it got people to think about AAA baseball in central New York again. Why would you simply put a lazy title on your team, the name of your major league team, when right in your own organization, number one, you've got an amazing minor league baseball name. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies, where Tim Tebow currently plays, is a great nickname. Think of some of the terrific nicknames that you see in minor league baseball. I love the Batavia Muck Dogs right up the road. And one of the great all-time minor league baseball names, the Macon Whoopie. I mean, that's fantastic. Come on, that's great. That's what minor league sports is all about. So in the spirit of creativity, in the spirit of somewhere where people expect to get crazy nicknames, you're going to call them the Syracuse Mets? Let's hope that's not the case. Number two, a nickname should have mass appeal. If you simply take on the name of your Major League Baseball team, why are you willingly shutting off a large percentage of fans that would be turned off by that? I'm not a Mets fan. I don't want a Mets hat, a Mets shirt, a Mets t-shirt, whatever the case may be. If you have a creative logo, if you have a creative nickname, you're going to get people that are going to buy your shirt, buy your hat, be invested in you, find you on the internet, whatever the case may be, if they're not even a fan of your team. You know, I always think of when I go to Cooperstown, and I go to Cooperstown pretty much every year, and I always end up in the souvenir shops right there on Main Street, and there's some great souvenir shops where you can just see hundreds of different logos, hats merchandise from all over minor league baseball. I always love to go in these shops and be like, wow, what's that? I've bought hats for teams. I had no idea where they were and what they are, but that's a cool looking logo. You're not going to do that with the New York Mets. So why willingly shut yourself off from people being interested in what you are by putting yourself in that proverbial box? Think outside the box. Don't just simply name it the Mets in that department. But third, and perhaps most important, That is in no way, shape, or form a local nickname. Now, that's not to say the Syracuse Chiefs are either. There's plenty of sports teams out there that have the nickname Chiefs, but it became synonymous with that baseball team. It feels local because it's been the Chiefs for so long. You want to talk about what changing your nickname can do? There are people to this day that call that team over there the Sky Chiefs. But you know what? It's a credit to they did something different, it stood out, and people remember it. So combine the best of both worlds here. Do something creative. Do something that stands out. Do something that's going to sell you a lot of merchandise and get you a lot of attention. 
but also is a testament to central New York. It does not have to be the Syracuse salt potatoes, although that would be really cool. But that is a big reason why the salt potatoes took off the way it did last year. It is unique to us. It is something in Syracuse, New York, that is a conversation piece. I can't tell you how many times I have talked to people that have come in from out of town, have spoken with people in media settings, and salt potatoes come up, and they're like, what are salt potatoes? Now, they're simple, right? They're potatoes cooked in salt. You put some butter on them, good times. But salt potatoes bring out pride. Salt potatoes bring up memories of summertime. What sport is played in the summer? Baseball, right? It's more than just a creative nickname. It's more than just a cool t-shirt. It is local pride. So here's hoping that when the New York Mets take over, they simply don't do the lazy thing and put their own logo and their own name in Syracuse, New York. The New York Mets are bound here until about 2024 when the lease over at NBT Bank Stadium is up. If you simply put the Mets nickname, if you simply put the Mets nickname on this team, I think it's going to be the first sign that they're not serious about being here long term. That's the Syracuse Sports Podcast for this week. I remind you to please subscribe. We would really appreciate that. Just hit iTunes or Google Play. Find Syracuse Sports Podcast, hit that subscribe button, and then you're going to get new episodes of this podcast whenever we do them. Thanks so much for listening today. Thanks to Jason Benetti for joining us today. We'll talk to you next time.